Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm Marco Sassoli. Uh, I teach international law at the University of Geneva in Switzerland, and I'm director of the Department of Public International Law and International Organization. Today, I would like to speak to you about uh, international humanitarian law, uh, traditionally called the laws of war or the law of armed conflict, in a previous life, I practiced this law because I worked for 13 years with the International Committee of the Red Cross, but now I have left since uh, 14 years, so I certainly don't speak for them. What is uh, international humanitarian law? We could define it as a branch of international law limiting the use of violence in armed conflicts, so it only applies in armed conflicts, by doing two things. Sparing those who do not or no longer directly participate in hostilities, those who do not are the civilians, those who do no longer are those who surrendered, uh, the prisoners of war, or those who are otherwise hors de combat wounded or sick, this is one part of it. And the other part is to limit the violence to the amount necessary to achieve the aim of the conflict, which can be, independently of the cause for which a party fights, only to weaken the military potential of the enemy. And I think from this definition, result already the basic principles of international humanitarian law. First, the principle of distinction between civilians and combatants, and only combatants may be attacked, civilians are protected, but only combatants may directly participate in hostilities. They have also the combatants' privilege which is that, at least in international armed conflict, they cannot be punished for having committed lawful acts of war. And unfortunately, one of the lawful acts of war is to target and to kill enemy combatants. A second principle is the prohibition to attack those who are hors de combat, which means who are no longer able to fight or no longer willing to fight. A third principle is the prohibition to inflict unnecessary suffering. Even in war, unfortunately, wars are necessarily uh, implying a lot of suffering of people, but uh, a lot of suffering we see today in armed conflicts is unnecessary to weaken the military potential of the enemy, and therefore it's unlawful. And the principle of necessity, the principle of necessity doesn't mean that everything which is necessary is lawful. All on the contrary, it means that even what is not specifically prohibited by a rule of international law is not lawful if it is not necessary to achieve a military aim. And finally, the principle of proportionality, because obviously even if an aim or a target is lawful, it may have, the attack may have incidental effects, unlawful effects, which are disproportionate compared with the lawful target. And then, for instance, the attack is unlawful. Now, when we take this definition, we already see 
also the inherent limits of international humanitarian law and I at least don't think I can hide them to you. First, we have to be conscious that international humanitarian law does not prohibit all violence, even deadly violence. The use of deadly force, which is very exceptional in peacetime under human rights law, is at least against combatants in international armed conflicts, lawful and normal. International humanitarian law, second inherent limit, cannot protect all those affected by armed conflicts. And it is not a question of the innocent. Please uh, be sceptical if one speaks about innocent civilians. The question is not whether one is innocent or guilty, but these are two categories. And I give you an example. My son uh, is in Switzerland, where we have a conscription system, was a Swiss soldier. And believe me, if you knew him, he's a completely innocent person. Nevertheless, if Switzerland had been involved in an armed conflict, even if another country had attacked Switzerland, he would have been under international humanitarian law, a lawful target of attack. And the worst criminal must be prosecuted and punished. But it's not because you are a criminal that you are a lawful target of attack. A third inherent limit is that international humanitarian law, we come back to that later in this lesson, cannot make a distinction according to the aim of the conflict. So those who are fighting for a right cause and for a wrong cause are subject to the same limitations because both may only try to weaken the military potential of the enemy. And precisely because international humanitarian law also applies to a justified use of force, it cannot prohibit a party to overcome the enemy. This is the essence of armed conflict. And unfortunately, at least one side in most armed conflict is right and therefore has the right under international law to overcome its enemy. And finally, and this is probably the weakest point, um, this definition of international humanitarian law presupposes that parties have a rational aim and that the aim is not as such incompatible with uh, international humanitarian law. I may explain that. Uh, the normal argument how to convince uh, armed forces to comply with humanitarian law is to say, if you comply with these rules, you will achieve your aim more easily. It is simply wasting ammunition to attack civilians. You have to concentrate on the military potential of the enemy. This is a logical argument for a party which wants to overcome the political will of the enemy, which wants to uh, control enemy territory, while if the aim of a party is rape, looting, ethnic cleansing, worse, genocide, then obviously this argument is no longer uh, working. 
because if they want to get rid of the civilian population of a certain ethnic origin, then somehow they don't care about the combatants. They want to get rid of the civilians. And this is prohibited by IHF. And now it's much more difficult to get respect of rules which are incompatible with the very aim of a party. But fortunately, at least in my experience, no party has ever admitted and officially claimed that it has such an unlawful aim. Now, some people uh, question whether it's possible to regulate by law warfare. I mean, armed conflicts are a very exceptional situation, are an unlawful situation. We come back to that in international law and for non-international armed conflicts in domestic law. And therefore, one can understand that it is questioned whether this can be regulated by legal rules. Now, on the one hand, we have to remember that uh, domestic law unquestionably applies even in armed conflicts, which are a situation where the very survival of the individual, of the group, of the state is at stake. But nevertheless, we expect people to comply with domestic law, not to kill their commanders, not to kill their comrades. Second, when there is a social reality, and unfortunately armed conflicts are still a social reality, there must also be law governing this reality. I would even say armed conflicts without law are no longer armed conflicts, but simply crimes. What is the real distinction between an armed conflict and chaos and crime is that there are rules uh, governing armed conflicts. And this is the difference compared with peacetime law. Because in peacetime law, no country of the world has regulations on how to rob a bank. It's simply prohibited. While to make war at the international level, to attack another country is also prohibited. But there are also rules on if you do it, how you do it, and how do both parties may do it. As far as the historical development of humanitarian law, obviously one could uh, make an entire lecture about that. Uh, it is clear that international humanitarian law existed much earlier than the modern codification in the Geneva Conventions. It's probably one of the oldest parts of international law because unfortunately one of the oldest forms uh, of contact between organized human societies has been armed conflict, together with trade. Uh, and there are old rules, often customs, often rules which are also based in all the religions of the world uh, on how to behave in an armed conflict. And there were bilateral agreements between belligerents. What was new, but was part of a general tendency at the end of the 19th century to codify international law, and by this obviously to develop it, is that since the first Geneva Convention in 1864, states have accepted treaties which lay down in writing general rules on the protection of war victims. And then these treaties 
this treaty regime expanded, expanded covering additional issues. In the beginning it was only about the wounded and sick military, then it covered also prisoners of war. Since 1949 we have also a Geneva Convention protecting uh, civilians. It expanded from a law of applicable only to international armed conflicts between states to a law which also covered, uh, covers armed conflicts, not of an international character. And the protective regime became more and more detailed. Now, some critics say, and they are right, uh, humanitarian law is always one war behind. And indeed, it is, with very few exceptions, only after a humanitarian problem arose that states have accepted rules. Think about the First World War and then the 1929 Geneva Convention on the Protection of Prisoners of War was accepted. The horrors of the Second World War, in particular against civilians and in occupied territories. And then the Fourth Geneva Convention, protecting civilians in the power of the enemy, were accepted. In addition, it often takes a long time because those who won a war generally do not accept rules which retroactively criticize, obviously legally don't outlaw, what they did in the last war. So after the Second World War, it was easy to agree upon better rules protecting civilians in the power of the enemy after the horrors of the Nazis and the Japanese. But the rules on the conduct of hostilities on aerial bombardments, because both sides committed horrible attacks, which I don't say were unlawful under the law at the time, but imagine Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Dresden, Hamburg, but also Coventry, uh, Warsaw or Rotterdam, and their states were not ready in 1949, the winners of the war, to outlaw such methods. So, at least in written law, we had to wait until 1977, which is one of the great progresses of Additional Protocol 1 of 1977 to govern with no modern rules the conduct of hostilities. And today we still have progress sometimes in very specific rules on weapons, outlawing certain weapons like anti-personnel mines, cluster ammunitions, uh, and in the field of the implementation of humanitarian law, I think international criminal law, seen from the point of view of international humanitarian law, it's an implementation mechanism of the rules, but it has made incredible progress. And the practice of the international criminal tribunals has also contributed to clarify a lot of rules of international humanitarian law. Now, let's come to the sources of international humanitarian law. Where do we find this law? It's a branch of international law which is relatively well uh, codified in written, general, mostly universally accepted treaties. The 1907 Hague Conventions are still 
to a certain extent important, in particular the regulations annexed to the fourth Hague Convention of 1907, the so-called Hague Regulations, which govern uh, land warfare. Here, in particular, the law of military occupation is still important as codified in the Hague Regulations, while other parts of the Hague Regulations are clearly uh, outdated and have been overcome by newer rules. The basis of what is called, so this is Hague law, traditionally called the law on conduct of hostilities was the Hague law and Geneva law was the law protecting persons in the power of the enemy, wounded, sick, shipwrecked, prisoners of war, protected civilians. And this is today codified in the four Geneva Conventions of 1949. These conventions are universally accepted. Every generally recognized state is a party to the four Geneva Conventions. The first convention is protecting the wounded and sick in long, uh, land warfare. The second, the wounded, sick and shipwrecked in sea warfare, the third, the prisoners of war, and the fourth promises in its title to protect civilians in time of war. But as I explained, in reality, it only protects civilians, with some small exceptions, who are in the power of the enemy, be it enemy civilians on the territory of a belligerent, or more importantly, inhabitants of an occupied territory. And as I mentioned, these conventions do not, uh, with very few exceptions, deal with the conduct of hostilities. This law has been updated in the 1977 additional protocols, which have nevertheless some 165 state parties, but important states which are often involved in armed conflicts are not yet parties to these protocols. However, even those states recognize today that most, but not all, rules of the protocols are customary international law and therefore binding upon all states. The first additional protocol deals with international armed conflicts. It updates rules of the Geneva Conventions. It contains rules on the conduct of hostilities, on means and methods of warfare, and it adapts, but this is controversial, uh, rules of international humanitarian law to the realities of guerrilla warfare, where it is, for instance, not always possible to wear a uniform to distinguish oneself from the civilian population. And the second additional protocol deals with armed conflicts not of an international character. And today, most armed conflicts, I would say, fortunately, are not of an international character. Because uh, let us remember how horrible the international wars of the last century were. Uh, and there we have fewer rules. We have only one article of the four Geneva Conventions. Each Geneva Convention has an Article 3, which is applicable 
to armed conflicts not of an international character. And we have, at least for the most uh, violent of these conflicts, additional protocol one, which contains less rules than additional protocol, uh, sorry, additional protocol two applies to non-international armed conflicts, and it contains less detailed rules than additional protocol one, because states still today are not ready to accept the same rules for international and for non-international armed conflicts. They consider that non-international armed conflicts against non-state actors are a question touching their sovereignty. Therefore, the rules are less detailed. But we have today rules which automatically apply to non-international armed conflicts. This is the treaty law. Then, as always, customary law is very important. Uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross has made a study uh, published in 2005 about customary international humanitarian law, 6,000 pages of study. They came to the conclusion that the great majority, I think 141 out of 161 rules, are the same in international and non-international armed conflicts. There, obviously, they base themselves more on what states say on the official practice of states than of what, on what states actually do. But law is always something about what ought to be and not a description of, in particular in the field of humanitarian law, the unfortunate reality in armed conflicts. And certainly international humanitarian law treaties attract, as you know from the North Sea Continental Shelf case in another field, attract practice of states and therefore widely ratified treaties are often creating, contributing to the creation of customary international humanitarian law. Today, it is uncontroversial, even for the states which are not parties to Protocol Additional 1, that most of its rules, with only a few exceptions, are customary law. And this is not what I say, but it is what those states tell their troops in their instructions and military manuals, so this is recognized. We should, however, not either forget the fundamental principles of international humanitarian law. And there I should mention one important principle, which is, uh, has been drafted in 1907, or already in 1899, in uh, the Hague Regulations, the so-called Martin's Clause, which states, inhabitants and the belligerents remain under the protection and the rule of the principle of the law of nations as they result from the usages established among civilized peoples, that we could still say is customary law, the laws of humanity and the dictates of public conscience. Many experts consider and the International Court of Justice has confirmed that, that this 
is an important guiding principle which makes clear that the written rules of humanitarian law are always insufficient. And if there is no clear prohibition, this doesn't mean that something is lawful. And as I mentioned, we have these principles of humanitarian law, which are somehow the substance of the written rules and which should guide the interpretation, such as the principle of humanity, the principle of necessity, proportionality, distinction, prohibition of unnecessary suffering. A specificity of humanitarian law uh, are its addressees. You know that international law treaties are normally binding upon states, and it is then the domestic legal order of a state which makes sure that those rules, if they have to be uh, respected by individuals, shall also be respected by them. It is absolutely uncontroversial that international humanitarian law does not only bind states, but Article 3 common to the Geneva Conventions explicitly states, in case of armed conflicts not of an international character, each party to the conflict shall be bound to apply as a minimum the following provisions and then you have a kind of mini convention protecting victims of non-international armed conflict and each party to a non-international armed conflict is by definition the state but also a non-state armed group, the rebels, the terrorists as they are often called by their enemies, they too are bound by international humanitarian law if they are engaged in an armed conflict. And individuals are also bound, at least by the criminalized rules. So someone who in an international armed conflict linked, linked to the conflict kills a civilian, violates international law, commits a war crime, and may and must be pan punished based upon international law. Now you will say he speaks about rules applicable to armed conflicts, but we know that armed conflicts should not exist. And this is not simply a moral wish, but it's a rule of international law and of domestic law. Since 1928 at the latest, it is prohibited to wage war between states and therefore necessarily if international law was respected, if the UN Charter was respected, international armed conflicts would not exist. The same is true for non-international armed conflicts because uh, if the domestic law of every country, and I would li uh, like to add, if international human rights law was respected, there couldn't be a non-international armed conflict. But may I remind you that under international law there are some exceptions to the prohibition of the use of force. Obviously it's only an exception for one party. It's never an exception which can justify both parties. So. If international law, the use ad bellum, the 
UN Charter was respected, there wouldn't be international armed conflicts. Nevertheless, there are the exceptions, uncontroversial exceptions, like uh, the right to individual and collective self-defense and uh, the use of force authorized or decided by the UN Security Council. And then there are plenty of people, but this is not the subject of this course, who try to add additional justifications for the use of force. Anyway, for humanitarian law, this does not matter. But as international armed conflicts are unlawful with the UN Charter at the latest, there's a certain tension between the existence of a law which prohibits a certain conduct and a law which applies and regulates that conduct. And this was the reason why the International Law Commission in 1948 decided that it would not deal with the codification of humanitarian law, because it said we are an organ of the United Nations and we have to believe in the UN Charter. And the first purpose of the UN Charter is to avoid wars. And if we were regulating wars, how to conduct wars, we would undermine the credibility of the UN Charter. Well, I would have wished they were right, <laughs> that indeed there were no armed conflicts, and so today we would only uh, deal with this branch of international law in history uh, of international law courses. Unfortunately, armed conflicts still exist, and therefore the international society decided that it is necessary to keep rules on how to conduct such armed conflicts, waiting for the time that there are no more uh, armed conflicts. So humanitarian law should disappear, but it should not be disappear before the phenomenon it regulates, armed conflicts, disappears. It's, by the way, interesting that historically, uh, this distinction between the use ad bellum, which is the rules on the legality of the use of force, in Arabic, the haq al the right to make war, or today, the prohibition to make war, on the one hand, and the use in bello, the kanun al the law which regulates how to make war, they were not always as they are today, totally separated. Uh, at the time of Grotius, Grotius wrote about law in war, the Urebelli Akpakis, and in the Urebelli, obviously, he dealt with the lawfulness of conduct in war. And he mentioned just war. And the conditions for a just war was first that one had a justa causa, a just cause, that's used ad bellum. And second, that the one who has a just cause has to use just means, respect the temperamenta belli. So, at the time of Grotius, only one side was bound by humanitarian law, the one who had a just cause. But then, law, war became a simple fact of international life, like trade. And therefore it was logical that this 
relation between states is also regulated by rules. The problem, if I may say, at least for lawyers' problem, only arose once this behavior to make war became prohibited, in particular with the UN Charter. And there it became essential, and it is today uncontroversial, that we have to separate totally the two uh, branches, the use ad bellum and the use in bellum. Why? One could say it's a question of logic. Once the primary rules prohibiting the use of force have been violated, then there must be a subsidiary regime which applies independently of that primary violation, because otherwise they could never apply. Second, there are humanitarian reasons. The victims of armed conflicts are not responsible that their state has violated international law. The use ad bellum has committed a violation of the UN Charter. And they need exactly the same protection, whether they are on the right or on the wrong side of the conflict. And there are practical reasons. Unfortunately, in every international armed conflict today, it remains controversial who is right and who is wrong. And both sides make arguments that they are right under the UN Charter. And therefore, if this law was different for the aggressor and for the state fighting in self-defense, then it could never apply because both sides claim that the other one is the aggressor or has a UN Security Council authorization or whatever. And this has been recognized. It has been recognized in the preamble of uh, Protocol Additional 1 and already in the trials which followed uh, the Second World War. It is interesting that the prosecutor, a prosecutor in Nuremberg at the time of the Nuremberg trials, made the argument that Nazi Germany could not invoke the rules on the law of military occupation in its favor, because obviously the law of military occupation protects the population of occupied territories, but it also empowers an occupying power to do certain things. And the prosecutor says Germany cannot invoke that because it unlawfully uh, provoked this situation. Ex injuria use non oritur, there can be no rights uh, flowing from injustice, but the tribunal, in my view, correctly answered no. Even Germany can invoke the rights based on international humanitarian law, because humanitarian law must be the same for both sides. Now, what are the consequences of this distinction and total separation, which must, hopefully, if I was explaining it well, uh, be obvious for you, but be conscious that for those concerned by an armed conflict, it is very difficult to bear. First, the equality of belligerence before international humanitarian law. I told you that under international law, under international humanitarian law, my son, when he was a Swiss soldier and another country would have attacked Switzerland, he would have been 
and as lawful target as the soldiers of that other country. And believe me, my wife doesn't agree with this rule. She says, well, that's a difference. And indeed, it is in international law a difference whether you defend your country or you attack another country. But the rules of humanitarian law are and must be the same. But believe me, when you are in actual armed conflict, you cannot tell the parties, I don't care about who is right and who is wrong. If they were attacked, if they are occupied, they say that makes a difference. Nevertheless, you have to explain them that although they are right, and precisely because they are right, they have to comply with the rules of humanitarian law. The rules of humanitarian law are also for those who fight for a just cause. And international humanitarian law must apply independently of the qualification of a conflict under use ad bellum and under the UN Charter. So whether a country uh, fights in self-defense or unlawfully occupies the territory of its neighbor, it has exactly to comply with the same rules. And arguments under use ad bellum may, in my view, clearly not be used to interpret international uh, humanitarian law. Here, I must admit that at least the wording of a decision of the International Court of Justice in the advisory opinion on the legality of the threat or use of nuclear weapons of 1966 said implicitly, unfortunately, the contrary. It's the famous paragraph E, which in its first part comes to the conclusion, which in my view is a reasonable conclusion, but you can also have another opinion, that any use of nuclear weapons would normally uh, violate the principles of international humanitarian law. But then they added, however, in view of the current state of international law and of the elements of fact at its disposal, the court cannot conclude definitely whether the threat or use of nuclear weapons would be lawful or unlawful in an extreme circumstance of self-defense in which the very survival of a state would be at stake. This means it's a violation of humanitarian law, but in an extreme situation of self-defense, this may nevertheless be justified. But if this is true, then it would also be justified to uh, torture prisoners of war, to kill wounded in an extreme situation of self-defense in which the very survival of a state would be at stake. I think this is mixing up, sorry, with all respect for the International Court of Justice, use at bellum and use in bello. And I stand with the war crimes uh, trials after the Second World War where one German general who destroyed most of Finland when retreating before the Soviet forces, then he was tried for this destruction. And his argument was that this was absolutely necessary to avoid uh, losing the war. And the answer of the tribunal was that humanitarian law by definition 
applies even to situations where one side risks to lose, because if it was otherwise, then as necessarily in all armed conflict, one or the other side risks to lose, this law would be perfectly useless. I may give another example. There was a report by a state who had conducted a major international armed conflict on its respect of humanitarian law. And when it liberated an occupied territory, there was, an, uh, there was a military operation, and it had to interpret the principle of proportionality. And they wrote that they had to evaluate the interest of the population of that territory to be liberated against the risks for that population. And this is the wrong evaluation, because the proportionality principle in humanitarian law must be exactly the same if you want to occupy a territory or if you want to liberate a territory, because these are use ad bellum issues. I should, however, add and tell my humanitarian friends that this separation between use ad bellum and use in bello also means that humanitarian law may not be used to uh, render the application of use ad bellum, for instance, self-defense, impossible. So, for instance, when we interpret the proportionality principle and we have to take into account reverberating effects of an attack on the civilian population, and some argue we have also taken into account the unemployment which is created and the misery in the world. Imagine if there was today a major armed conflict in the Middle East, the petrol prices everywhere would raise dramatically. And this would mean in some countries in Africa that people die because petrol is too expensive. But if you had to take such faraway consequences into account, this would mean, which is wonderful, it would always be unlawful to conduct war. But self-defense is lawful. And therefore, we cannot interpret humanitarian law in a way which makes self-defense impossible. Another example are national liberation wars. I come back to them. Uh, where uh, it is today recognized that the people uh, using force in the exercise of its right to self-determination against a colonial dominator, a foreign occupier, or a racist regime has the right to use force. But if you interpret the existing rules of humanitarian law as meaning that you have constantly to wear a uniform, well, a national liberation movement, or even a guerrilla movement in an occupied territory simply cannot exercise that right under use at bellum if it had to comply with those restraints by use in bellum. And we cannot stop wars through humanitarian law. We have to stop wars through the UN Charter. So humanitarian law has always to be interpreted in a way which doesn't make it impossible to conduct a lawful armed conflict. Today, this distinction, separation between international and non-international armed conflict is 
under threat. Because everyone who has a concept of just or even humanitarian war, I mean, those who today say we have to use force for humanitarian reasons, are not very open to the idea that nevertheless they are subject to exactly the same constraints than the other side against which they use force. And as soon as you call an armed conflict a peace operation, you will be more reluctant to admit that also you are engaged in a peace operation, therefore for a very noble cause, you have to comply with the same rules than your enemy who, by definition, doesn't want peace. We have to understand that, that the ideal in, under the UN Charter would be that international armed conflicts become international law enforcement operations between the international legality and international outlaws. But when we speak about law enforcement, about police, the police and the criminals are never equal in any domestic law of any country. The criminals may not commit crime. The police is subject to all kinds of restraints by human rights law when uh, combating crime. While if it is an armed conflict, then both sides uh, are subject to restraints. Now you would say, okay, this is very nice. This is applicable to international armed conflicts. Fortunately, there are only few international armed conflicts. Most armed conflicts today are non-international armed conflicts. And there's no rule of use ad bellum for non-international armed conflicts. They are not even prohibited by international law. They are governed by domestic law. And this is what is the kind of use ad bellum of non-international armed conflict. In the domestic law of every country in the world, it is unlawful to make war against the government, or it is fortunately unlawful to make war a one group of citizens against another group of citizens. That's the use ad bellum. Nevertheless, if the amount of violence in a country and the degree of organization of the parties is sufficient, this is an armed conflict. And as far as humanitarian law is concerned, both sides to an armed conflict, whether their cause is right or wrong, and this will always be controversial, during the conflict are bound by the same rules, but international humanitarian law can obviously not oblige the parties, uh, the state, to treat the rebels under its domestic law equally to its own armed forces. Also, this is a cause of introduction to international humanitarian law, putting you into the framework of that branch, I would like to mention some of the main distinctions made by international humanitarian law as one of, in my view, the greatest experts of humanitarian law in the Francophone world, Eric David, has written, international humanitarian law is easy and complicated at the same time. It is easy because the basic rules, the prohibition to rape, to torture, 
to kill a prisoner, to starve a civilian. You notice that here I use the word civilian and therefore uh, it's not so easy because you have to define who is a civilian, but that will be the subject of another course. Um, these rules are obvious and you don't need the Geneva Conventions and you don't need a sophisticated training to apply these rules. And if these rules were respected, the reality of people affected by armed conflicts would be very uh, different. But at the same time, the rules are complicated. Because unlike in human rights law, you cannot directly go to the rule of behavior, but first you have to clarify a great amount of preliminary questions. So, for instance, for humanitarian law, first you have to clarify whether there is an armed conflict. Because if there is no armed conflict, not only does humanitarian law not apply, but it would be counterproductive to apply humanitarian law. I mean, I'm speaking now in a peaceful country. And if I came out of this building and the police would apply humanitarian law instead of human rights law when they want to arrest me, this would be a catastrophe. My rights are much better protected by peacetime international human rights law than they are protected by humanitarian law. But humanitarian law is realistic for armed conflict. Obviously, human rights law nevertheless also applies in armed conflict, but this is the subject of another course. So, you have to determine whether a situation is an armed conflict, and unfortunately, at least the clear majority opinion is, there is not one concept of armed conflict, but there are two kinds of armed conflict, international armed conflict, a very low level of violence between states makes already uh, IHL or which means international humanitarian law of international armed conflicts applicable, while all other armed conflicts are armed conflicts not of an international character. And there, not every uh, violence within a state is an armed conflict. There must be a much higher level of violence and there must be a minimum degree of organization of the groups involved for it to be a non-international armed conflict. So the first difficulty is to classify the situation. Even when you have classified the situation and you come to the conclusion this is an international armed conflict, the next step before you can apply the rules is you must, to classify, the per you must classify the person. You must know whether the person killed was a civilian or a combatant, for instance. If the person killed was a combatant, you have only to clarify whether this person had already surrendered or was wounded and sick. Otherwise, it's lawful to have killed that person. While if the victim is a civilian, then normally it's unlawful. But it might be that this civilian directly participated in hostilities or was the victim, incidental victim of a lawful attack which didn't violate the proportionality principle and the necessary precautions were taken. So you see the analysis is completely different according to the status of the victim. And the same thing is for people who are detained. A prisoner of war may be detained without 
any judicial procedure until the end of the uh, active hostilities in an international armed conflict. While a civilian may not be detained normally, only for either imperative security reasons, and then there must be uh, control of, uh, in this procedure or in the framework of a fair trial. So you have to determine whether a person concerned by an armed conflict is a civilian or a combatant. You imagine how difficult this is today in many conflicts. And if the person is a civilian, you are not at a let, you are not yet at the end of your analysis, but the rules protecting civilians in a party's own territory are different than the rules protecting them in occupied territory. So you have to classify uh, the territory. And for the conduct of hostilities, as I mentioned, you have to determine whether the intended target of an attack was a military objective. And if it was, then the proportionality rule and the obligation to take precautions apply. So there are many distinctions, many preliminary questions which have to be clarified before you can apply actually the rules of international humanitarian law. But I would like to stress again that those complicated rules of humanitarian law are those who interest us lawyers and are important for quite a number of people. Nevertheless, the most important rules are obvious and you don't need a training as an international lawyer to understand that it is unlawful to torture, to rape, to execute people who are in your power, to starve civilians and so on. So international humanitarian law to conclude is in my view an inherently insufficient law because it applies to a situation which is inherently non-humanitarian, uh, armed conflicts. But it can bring, if it is respected, a minimum of humanity in this profoundly un inhumane situation. Perhaps it would better, be better not to call it humanitarian law because it sounds as if it was making a war humane. It only brings an insufficient minimum of humanity, but a possible minimum of humanity into armed conflict. And there again, if it was respected, the reality in today's armed conflict would be very different. Thank you very much.